you end up talking for like hours and hours about black holes and where's the center and of the universe. And extract that what which is bogus and that which is not doesn't seem to exist. Think of objects not as single things, but as being made up of many constituents. Bill Nye made me hate science. Well, you're out at the pub and someone says, hey, what, uh, so what do you do? And I'm like, hey, well, I'm an astrophysicist. Good evening, everybody, and welcome for another week of Natural Reaction. My name is Nadia, and unfortunately today, Jacinta is not in the studio with us. She is off having a bit of fun in Bali. But don't fear, as always, we have Izzy with us. Hi, but uh, I want to say that Jacinta's not coming back. This is a coup d'etat. Uh. <laughs> We've usurped her. <laughs> yeah. Shh. It's our show now. She'll never know. And we also have a guest in the studio this week. We have Cedric van der Berg. How are you doing? Hey, good, thanks. <laughs> good. So Cedric is a PhD student and in the School of Biology or is it QBI? That's correct. It's both actually. Oh, both. Officially, if you want to put a like final tag on it, it's School of Biology. Okay. Yeah, so Cedric is doing his PhD um, in conjunction with the Queensland Brain Institute and School of Biology at the University of Queensland. Can you tell the listeners out there what you do? Um, so I engage broadly in what you can call uh, sensory ecology. So it's all about how animals sense, perceive their world and the kind of information channels they have available to pick up information from their environment. So vision, smell, hearing, and uh, we're focusing on vision. So anything about eyes and uh, visual perception of the environment. That's really, really cool, and I look forward to hearing all about that. Yes, can't wait to get into that discussion. What are you chatting about today, Izzy? Uh, well, if we have time. <laughs> we will have time. Uh, I'm talking about a new pyroelectric nanomaterial to save or to recapture lost energy from electronic products. Hmm. Mm. That'll be useful. And I was going to chat about a snubbed scientist today by the name of Hilda Mangold. You're listening to Natural Reaction here on Z Digital, and I'm going to be talking about a snubbed scientist by the name of Hilda Mangold. Snubbed scientist is Natural Reaction's segments, where we talk about scientists who have undergone some form of sexism. Now, Hilda is a German embryologist who was best known for a PhD thesis, which was the foundation for her mentor's 1935 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for the discovery of the embryonic organizer. She helped discover the mangled spearman organizer, which is a cluster of cells in the developing embryo of an amphibian that induces developments of the central nervous system. During the 1800s, scientists had confirmed that the body grows from a single fertilized egg, also known as a zygote, and not from a miniature preformed being, as some scientists believe. Well, maybe you humans do. <laughs> <laughs> Izzy doesn't. Izzy came out as is. Uh, I'm actually an advanced fungus. <laughs> it's that, a that colonial organism. <laughs> <laughs> so what orchestrates this transformation from a single cell stage to a very complicated organism? How does a zygote basically divide from tons of individual cells into something with tissues and organs. Like how do these cells know to become into skin or intestines and how does it know to become into brain matter? How do these how do the same cells know how to divide into this respective things? Magic. Magic. It definitely well, is. Well essentially. Magic. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well this is exactly where Hilda comes in. Now Hilda was born in eighteen ninety eight in Gotha, which is a central eastern province in Germany. Her parents, Ernst and Gertrude Pruschholt, owned a soap factory and were considered quite wealthy for the time. Hilda was 20, old year, 20 years old when she began her tertiary studies at the University of Frankfurt, and during this time, she attended a lecture on experimental embryology by renowned embryologist 
Hans Spearman. She was so inspired and fascinated by his research that she moved to the Zoological Institute in Freiburg to work with him. It was here that she met and married her husband, Otto Mangold, who was Spearman's chief assistant at the time. Hilda was quite disheartened when her first project in Spearman's lab turned out to be tediously dull, while her male peers pursued problems related to Spearman's groundbreaking work on early embryology development. He had her replicate an obscure, decades-old experiment. In the late 1700s, a French naturalist by the name of Abraham Trembley claimed that when he flipped a hydra, which is a tiny medusa-like invertebrate inside out, its insides morphed into its outsides and vice versa. And Hilda's assignment was to verify that this was true. Now, this wasn't the only time that Spearman had given his female graduate students projects that amounted to little more than supportive grunt work. Salome Walsh, who is considered a founder of modern developmental biology, joined Spearman's lab in 1928 and was given a similarly trivial task for her thesis. She stated that there was no doubt about Spearman's prejudice against women and cites Hilda as a primary example. Unable to duplicate Tremblay's results, Hilda became increasingly frustrated, and after Spearman himself also failed to get the Hydra to cooperate, he tasked Hilda with one of the highest priority experiments. And basically, this was to build upon Spearman's prior work. Her new project was to determine how cell identity was specified during a process called gastrulation. Now, during development, when an egg cell is fertilized by sperm, it divides over and over again, creating a ball of unspecialized cells called a blastocyst. This blastocyst then undergoes a phase called gastrulation, which is the rapid migration and rearrangement of the embryo into three distinct cell types, the ectoderm, mesoderm and endoderm, which form into all the tissues of a developing embryo. Now, at the time, the mechanism of cell specification in the embryo was not well understood. Before the process of gastrulation, Spearman discovered that cell identity was plastic. If you transplanted these cells in the blastocyst stage, they could become any of the three cell types. But after gastrulation, embryonic cells were no longer able to alter their cellular identity. So think of it as like the point of no return. Yes. So gastrulation was observed to begin in cells in the dorsal, or the backside of the embryo. Spearman found that a certain piece of the two-cell stage in a newt embryo, termed the grey crescent for its colour, was completely required for embryonic growth. When this area was fate mapped into later embryonic stages, he found that the grey crescent gave rise to the dorsal cells, which are important for initiating gastrulation. Spearman was intrigued by the potential function of these dorsal cells. He concluded that the dorsal lip must be responsible and provide the instructions for an embryo's development and dictate the destinies of the cells surrounding it. It was this theory that Hilda set out to test by performing embryonic transplantation experiments. By grafting the dorsal lip from one species of salamander, whose cells were white, onto the opposite side of an embryo of another species of salamander, whose cells were brown, Hilda could then track the fates of the cells she transplanted in the adult by seeing which parts of the body had a different color. These experiments were tedious, difficult, and technology wasn't very advanced, and transplanting the cells was quite a complicated process. These salamanders or newts were also raised in pond water, which was not sterile, and since there were no antibiotics at the time, many embryos died from bacterial infections. Hilda watched as graft after graft failed to take or the conjoined cells perished. Then one day, an embryo survived. In the three days since its operation, the tiny sphere, pocked by two dorsal lips at opposite poles, one white, the other brown, had grown into a pair of Siamese twin tadpoles joined at the belly. Aww. 
I got I do got to say I have nothing but incredible admiration and sympathy for this person for her after this because as someone who's just trying to get some plant tissue culturing to work with a really simple edit in it I can't imagine trying to stitch together uh, animal cells in pond water without any selection. I just the thought makes me want to cry. It's it's pretty daunting. <laughs> <clears throat> so under her microscope, Hilda could see that the transplanted dorsal lips, so the white cells, had formed only some muscle and other supportive tissues in the nearest twin. The rest of its body, the head, brain, spinal cord, kidneys, came from the host embryo, so the brown cells. She had shown for the first time the concept of induction, that some cells are able to change the fate of the cells around them. This was a monumental finding, which changed the face of developmental biology forever. Spearman was right. The dorsal lip was the embryo's foreman, and he named it the organizer. Hilda had worked on this project for two years, transplanting and recording the results of over 250 newt embryos. In the end, only six survived. And these results were presented in her thesis publication titled Induction of Embryonic Primordia by Implantation of Organizers from a Different Species. Now, despite her individual efforts, Spearman insisted that he was listed as first author on her thesis publication. Her lab mate, Victor Hamburg, who was also pursuing his PhD at the same time, wrote, I and all the rest of us saw ourselves proudly in print as sole authors for their respective projects. Hilda was frustrated by Spearman's interference and insistence in the authorship of her thesis, and rightfully so. Her project was no more than Spearman's than any other graduate students in the lab. All the students' projects were assigned and directed by Spearman. But in the end, Hilda had very little say in this matter. Shortly after completing her PhD, she moved to Berlin with her husband and young son. And in 1924, a gasoline heater exploded in her kitchen, and Hilda died shortly after, suffering from severe burns. Hmm. She was only 26 years old and did not live to see the publication of her thesis results. Damn. Mm. Pretty sad. Now, the organizer paper has been called one of the most significant events in experimental embryology. Hilda Mangold and Hans Spearman laid the groundwork for research on embryonic induction, which is the process by which certain cells release signals and direct neighboring cells to move or differentiate in a specific way. So exactly how the body forms different tissues. Hans Spearman accepted the Nobel Prize for this work in 1935, making Hilda's papers one of the few dissertations to directly lead to this prestigious award. Now, Nobel Prizes are not awarded posthumously, so it is impossible to know if the committee would have included Hilda in the award. After all, Spearman had contributed so significantly to embryological research, and his entire body of work itself was well worth the Nobel Prize on its own. Now, in saying that, Spearman mentioned Hilda a total of two times during his Nobel lecture, and did not include the fact that it was her dissertation project. Given that the Nobel Committee specifically cited Hilda's thesis in the prize announcement, her role was significantly minimized during Spearman's speech. Hilda Mangold most certainly deserves our recognition for her brilliant contribution to this field and should forever be remembered as a pioneer of developmental embryology. Yeah, definitely. I'm just going to say the the dedication, because of what, uh, so six embryos out of 250, was yes. it? So like less than 4%? efficiency <laughs> pretty much or <laughs> could not did not want to do that a very very small amount mm. for all that hard work a very time consuming tedious work i know like for Sounds people it's very familiar <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yes like, i know a lot of people at home probably don't have like a lot of grounding and what that would entail but 
just take it from everyone here that that was, is absolutely miserable work. Culturing cells, especially, I'm someone who works with bacteria and plants, and they are much, much more friendly to work with. Oh, <laughs> uh, with, with nowadays advances in the lab, how we do things, it's it's probably very easy compared to what they had to go through during oh, the day. Definitely. Again, once again, pond water with no selection. Mm. <laughs> Interestingly, um, some of Spearman's experiments were really cool. So uh, some of the prior work that he did, basically he took the developing cells and he kind of constricted it with a baby hair. So what he did is he tied a lasso around the cell using a hair because it was so thin and fine. And that way he was also able to develop into like Siamese twins. That's fascinating. So a lot of the stuff he did was really, really cool. Again, a lot of the snub scientists we talk about at the time, this um, sexism was somewhat... Standard. Yeah, it was standard, unfortunately. But Hilda Mangold still deserves recognition for her contribution to everything. It's sad that she never got to see her thesis published or, you know, be around for the Nobel Prize, but she'll forever be remembered in the field of developmental embryology. You're listening to Natural Reaction here on 4ZZZ. And we're about to chat to our guest who's in the studio with us, I and should, that is... I have a great little segue here, mm-hmm. moving from developmental biology. Um, there was a... Oh, God, I'm trying to remember the paper when it came out. It was quite a while ago. It was not quite a while ago. It was like five years ago now, probably, about how in salamanders, two little p- spots in cells uh, will be extra pro- positive, char- positively charged. And they, the two most positively charged parts of this sort of cluster of cells, the undifferentiated cells, will decide where the eyes will be of a salamander. In fact, like you can, if you can manually manipulate another spot to be more protonated, so more positive, you will cause eye development in weird places. Like you can do it, you can make it so like the tail will have an eye growing at the end of it. It won't be attached to anything, but it'll be there. Would it be functional? No, I don't think it'd be, I don't think they found it attached to anything. It was just, just an eye, like the, or the structure was there. Interesting. But not the full thing. And moving away from that, from developmental biology into sensor into sensory organs into sensory ecology with our uh, lovely guest nice. in the studio. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Stuck the landing. <laughs> Good job. I'll give you props. Yeah. yeah. So we're talking to Cedric van der Berg, who is a second year PhD student. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Good. And you are a marine biologist. Marine ecologist. Marine ecologist. Yeah. Yeah. Marine ecologist. I would say. Walk that line. Walk that line. <laughs> and so what exactly are you doing with your project? So you work on a animal called a nudibranch. Um, yeah, so this is, this is um, okay, two, <laughs> two things. <laughs> Rule number one, um, and that's where there's a lot of enthusiasts um, that kind of in their spare time, so non-scientists who really love nudibranchs, and the one thing that just makes them have tears in their eyes is calling them nudie branches for the love of nudie branks i just kind of uh, tend to be a bit of a just have to point out to people no it's a, a nudie, nudie brank. brank snub <laughs> yes i do apologize uh, I, and i recommend to anyone at home if you don't know what a nudie brank is uh we had a lovely description <laughs> we had, but we had a lovely description from our, our guest in the studio if you if people think of slugs and um, so there are marine slugs, um, essentially the slug equivalent from your backyard on your lettuce that you really don't want to have on it, that brown turd light looking <laughs> crawling thing, um, it's the marine equivalent of it. And unlike their terrestrial relatives, they they just happen to be evolving into these uh, thousands of shapes of 
incredible uh, kind of alien, almost alien-like looking colors and shapes. And yeah, it's like a firework. <laughs> yes, they're gorgeous animals. I thoroughly recommend you Google them. A lot of ways they look like if you sat down people to make a movie and you're like, let's make a cool alien together, you would come up with something like a nudibranch. They are they are fantastically gorgeous. I really just got to recommend you got to go see them. Yeah. But moving away from how cool <laughs> nudibranchs are, let's move <laughs> to what you do with them. Yes. Our part of the lab works uh, with the question of um, how and why animals evolve uh, particular types of coloration and color patterns and uh, the purpose behind that and what makes nature work that way. And uh, so we're particularly focused on a thing called uh, warning coloration. So if you think of uh, the bee wearing its pajama of uh, black and yellow, essentially trying to tell you, like, I dare you, touch me, <laughs> come at me, come or at like me, bro. Or like the red on the red back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, it's all about animals kind of combining some way of uh, defense, let's say spines or stingers or toxins, or any kind of thing. Uh, with, with coloration, it just makes them stick out like a sore thumb, kind of um, just making you remember that that's the thing that caused you a lot of trouble. And uh, so we're, we're trying to find out how that comes about, like what's, what's the evolutionary mechanism behind that. And uh, so that's why we're working with nudibranchs because they're gorgeous. They're gorgeous, but they don't know how gorgeous they are because <laughs> because they they don't have they don't have eyes. So uh, well, they have kind of like really rudimentary kind of uh, clusters of light sensitive cells. Okay. Yeah. So and that's that's what makes them so. Whenever you work with some kind of um, system, you're 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 using models, right? So there are model organisms for exactly that purpose because um, the sole reason why they would evolve wearing certain colors and color patterns. The crazy way they do without having eyes is you have to look somewhere else for what's causing that and the only way we can explain it is predators with eyes and so that really deconstructs these incredibly complex mess of reasons why animals wear colors and what they use them for um, it brings it down to one specific purpose yeah i mean that, that's and that's definitely very very interesting especially because a lot of colors you, people sort of generally write off as mating displays sort of thing like uh, yeah that's a very familiar yeah uh, something that we're the peacock or, yeah, yeah yeah the peacock is like prototypical example a, of this a baboon's bum or, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah we don't because maybe this is more of a bias that we have as as land animals maybe it depends on mm. like as you say we're big land mammals um insects definitely display that uh, mm. defensive uh coloration there's there's a classic example of why does a zebra wear its stripes, right? Yeah. So if you think of that really big old question where arguments have gone back and forth and back and forth, is it is it uh, to fend off um, uh, disease-transmitting insects? Is it to confuse the predators like lions when they're being chased? And what current methodology in visual ecology is showing is that that is actually defensive coloration. So that is actually has evolved to help them get away from being chased. So the, the sort of the most recent evidence point towards a lot of these are it's based around predators. It's not so much in the actual species itself, it's outside pressures that push towards the coloration. It it often is and then that's sort of it's often a really complex oh, interaction of, of, of <laughs> let's say let's say you're an animal and your buddy animals, uh, your brothers and sisters and your neighbors, they also have eyes and they can see you. So you're using 
whatever you're wearing, it's like you're wearing clothes kind of thing for multiple different purposes, for showing how awesome you are, for uh, marking your turf, your territory, for... Um, Trying to attract those girls. Uh, attracting females, yeah, showing, look at With me, look how Von big my, <laughs> my, my access to resources is, if you... <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a really complex interaction of multiple, uh, like a lot of... Com- things that act together that make animals look the way they do, especially if they themselves have eyes. So, yeah, so that's back again, well, back to the nudibranch. So that's why we kind of um, disentangle this. Because in, in a nudibranch, you can, you can sort of... Just not, one reason. Yeah, you don't, you don't have to worry <laughs> yeah. so much yeah. about, uh, about yeah. the... The mating intra-species. Aspect. Yeah, it's like two like blind people trying to impress them <laughs> each other with the Fancy type of clothes, clothes they're wearing. Yeah, yeah so yeah, it doesn't really work. <laughs> so Cedric, how do you go about answering this evolutionary question? What do you do to try and figure this out? Um, so my project particularly evolves around the technological barrier that um, people have currently still have um, in how to go about describing animal color patterns in the first place. So we are very optical, visual animals. Like uh, for us humans, visual information is incredibly important. So we tend to go about describing colors and color patterns that we see in the environment uh, very, from an anthropocentric viewpoint. Like to me, this looks extremely colorful, so it must be or it should be aposematic. So that's the fancy word for warning coloration. And um, so the whole trick with the technology that came about maybe 20, 30 years is how to do that through another animal's eyes. So how can you look at an animal like an animal? Because for people at home, again, you have to remember that our senses are very much our human senses. For one, nudibranchs, etc., are marine animals, and light behaves very differently in water than it does in air, for one thing. For another thing is that we have a specific, just limiting this to sight, to visual information, we have specific wavelengths of light that we can see and that we perceive as visual light. The same is not true for every, for other organisms. They have different... Uh, Photoreceptors. Yeah. For, uh, Spectral sensitivities, if you want to know yes. the, the fancy word. Yeah. And the, uh, like the, the, probably one of, the, again, one of the prototypical examples of this is the mantis shrimp, which sees quite high which sees further down the spectrum than us and further up and it does a lot of really weird things so that um it's another animal that a large part of our lab uh, works with they're the fanciest pair of eyes you can find in nature essentially part people in your lab work with mantis shrimp yeah uh, yeah how hard is it to work with those guys <laughs> i gotta imagine it's not very easy um i'm not personally involved with the research but um work closely together with some of these people and um, it's the same a similar set of uh, tools that you go about so it's a mixture of catching the animals and studying their behavior to um, actually looking at how stuff is connected inside the eye and how different components inside the eye and then further up behind the eye how all that works yeah so that's it's an entire universe with the mantis shrimp and yeah (laughs) can they can you capture them and have them in captivity for any length of time yeah, yeah. Actually, okay. they're keeping them for for quite long periods of time and yeah. keeping their little trays and aquaria in, at UQ. And what about nudibranchs? Are they are they sensitive to any conditions? Yeah, that's the issue with nudibranchs. You, there's only like two or three species that really can be sort of kept in captivity. The issue with nudibranchs is they 
have really specific um, associations with their food sources, so they only eat very specific stuff. Oh, okay. okay. Um, so can you give us an example of how sort of specific um, this, this... It's it's pretty directly linked to the whole warning coloration. Um, there's roughly two kind of categories of nudibranchs. Some of them eat feed on sponges, so they roam around the reef and they nibble on sponges. Some of them are a bit more generalist. Uh, some of them are very, very specific, and they, they go to very specific species of sponges, and they eat those sponges, and they take up the pigments to make colors that they wear, and they also take up the toxins from those sponges to defend themselves, themselves with. with. Yeah. So and this is, again, going back to like why we sort of feel there has to be some sort of evolutionary drive towards these color, what colors these organisms wear, because they do take up a lot of yep. the a lot of your energy and time to get the resources you need to display these colors. It does, it does. And so with, with the whole, if you think about defensive coloration, if you think of it as a spectrum of either sticking out like a sore thumb or being super well camouflaged or being super well camouflaged, you can be on either end of that spectrum, right? So um, nudibranchs do everything. They're, they're, <laughs> they're, 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 they're a crawling firework or they're like, you wouldn't even know that they're there in the first place. So what that changes about you and that food food discussion is if you if you're camouflaged and you're really well adapted to match your visual background it kind of impairs you in being able to roam around the reef and because you're not going to match as well in all the places anymore because you're so well camouflaged for one specific place whereas if you then were to um if you're already picking up toxins anyway and you just use that to become more colorful and that's how the evolution of warning coloration is thought to come about. You're then able to roam around and uh, access those uh, different food sources. You are listening to Natural Reaction here on 4ZZZ, and we are chatting to Cedric van der Berg. Van den Berg. Van den Berg, yeah. Van den Berg. <laughs> <laughs> and before the break, we were talking about how nudibranchs take up toxins through their food. Oh, and uh, to toxins and colors, yeah. Toxins and colors. Yeah. yeah, and how to use that to defend themselves. I just remembered I never got back to actually yes. saying what my project ended oh, up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. please do. <laughs> yeah. We got carried away. So, yeah, so, so essentially what I'm doing is I'm looking through these nudibranchs using digital photography, uh, looking at these nudibranchs through these using these photos looking at them through the eyes of other animals so just to clear clarify for the, the listeners uh you're doing this in the wild in their yeah. native marine yeah environment? so i'd take a camera take it underwater on scuba and go out and take pictures of nudibranchs yeah so <laughs> bet you guys wish you could go scuba diving for a, for a job i've seen some of your pictures of the nudibranchs and they are phenomenal Oh, thank they you. are gorgeous <laughs> creatures. Yes, we'll uh, we'll point the way somewhere you can see some some of those photos in uh, towards the end of the show. Yes. Oh, yeah. so, <laughs> so keep listening. Keep <laughs> listening if you want to find out more about nudibranchs and see pretty pictures of them. And you should, because again, they're gorgeous. Mm. So, what kind of difficulties does trying to observe them in their natural habitat sort of pose? You kind of pointed out in the beginning of the show that light underwater is is kind of a different thing than to yeah. what it is on land so um whenever you aim at taking pictures of stuff underwater cameras need a lot of light so what it brings with it is that you have to get a whole bunch of light attached to your camera and to take on the water to have enough light to actually take the pictures that you want which for me um because the way we take the pictures it, you need an extra lot of light um, so you're like with a little sun attached to your <laughs> to your camera down there, and um, that just makes the whole thing very he heavy and hard to handle. And because we're working in 
kind of shallow reef environment, so usually no deeper than like 18 meters, you're really subjected to a lot of um, tidal pressure or tidal. Well, just currents yeah. and um, surge. So wa- if if there's waves on the surface, that's going to transmit all the way down. And because um, you're in a reef, a shallow reefy and sort of environment, there's be a lot of structure for you to bang into essentially that, that, that too that too so yeah as a, as a marine scientist as a, as a scuba diver in general you kind of grow up with this idea of don't leave anything but bubbles like don't touch yeah. anything whereas if you really need to get close into for, for macro photography so photography of small stuff like those nudibranchs in those difficult conditions, it gets really, really hard not to bang into stuff. And do you do you have any way to anchor yourself? Because I know you you're not supposed again you're not supposed to grab onto the, the the structure or the seaweed or the coral or anything. But do you have any way of safely anchoring yourself? Um, I do have kind of like a reef hook that I attach to oh. my chest. So it's kind of like a little harpoony thing <laughs> that you just attach it to like the rocks around you and then kind of try to hold you in place. But usually, what it ends up being this kind of. Um, one-armed stunt where I kind of just like dig a finger or two into the reef and with the other hand hold a massive camera rig that's supposed to be held in two hands. And, and, and the, the, yeah, these are not little camera rigs. <laughs> for anyone. Like, they are, uh, try and cast, you might, you might have, people might have seen them in other in documentaries. Things, but they have these two hit, two handhold thing, giant lights on top. They are hard to wield, <laughs> we'll, we'll say. Especially, Especially if you do water. it one-handed. <laughs> oh, that's intense. Yeah. So you go out into the field. What do you do in the lab? Um, so in the lab, um, that's kind of where uh, two worlds meet. So um, one thing is the whole camera stuff where we take the pictures and we we use a whole bunch of um, mathematical models to translate that information. So talking about light sensitivities of animals and translate that information into animal perception and to inform those models that we're using we're using picasso triggerfish as the our model predator so kind of the visual predator that would go around the reef and looking for nudibranchs and we do tons of uh, behavioral experiments with picasso triggerfish back at uq where we have two levels of aquaria full of uh, dozens of triggerfish that we make do tricks to better understand the limitations of their visual abilities to inform our models how do you train them? <laughs> Condition, classic. If you think of, uh, what's his name, Pavlov? Pavlov. Pavlov. Yeah, yeah, Pavlov's with the bell fish. and the dog. Dogs. So, <laughs> Pavlov's fish, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, exactly. So it's a, it's exactly the same process. You just condition your animal to, to get reward for a particular behavior. So like, what kind of tricks are we talking about? Um, so, for example, we're, we're interested in color vision and, uh, let's say, spatial vision, so spatial acuity, so how well can they resolve spatial information. Um, so things like that. So what you do is you teach them to, let's say, finding a dot, always find the dot on a on a, on a a gray background, for example. And if you peck the dot, you get food. So you just keep them a bit hungry and you give them food when they peck the dot. Oh, okay, so in, in by that way, you can sort of uh, observe how they observe colors. Exactly, because what you then can do, for example, if you're interested in their brightness and visions or their ability to tell shades of gray apart from each other, uh, you just make it harder and harder and harder to find that dot. And the fish will always try to find a dot because it always wants to eat. Yeah. Um, so that's how you can then pinpoint at the point of the, what we call a discrimination or a detection threshold um, in the visual system of a given animal. What information could you present to us about the, this discretion threshold for triggerfish? <laughs> so there's a PhD student, Naomi Green. She works a lot with um, the color perception of uh, Picasso triggerfish and 
I work with the uh, luminance, so the um, non-colored, the achromatic part of the visual process. And uh, experiments that I've been running that I thankfully um, have kind of started <laughs> to come to an end just kind of looked at luminance discrimination, so brightness discrimination thresholds in triggerfish. And we kind of found that they're not too similar to a budgie. So they're not, they're not dissimilar to a budgie. Yeah, so their thresholds are roughly about where your budgie would be. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And um, so what sort of bright, like on a human scale, what sort of brightness are we talking about? So if you think of a, like a gray spot on a gray background, that'd mm. be, for you, it'd probably still be fairly easy to see it but it's kind of on the point where you you look at it and you think like, oh yeah i can imagine how that could be hard for an animal to okay do. So, yeah. Yeah. but so you work with the achromatic side of it for the the chromatic side of it the colored side i imagine like that must be difficult to tease out more difficult to tease out some of the effects because of how color behaves in water right Yes, so that's one of the benefits of working in shallow reef environments where many times you still have a fairly large amount of the um, natural range of light. So, you know, like how red disappears really quickly and then you're narrowed down to like greenish, reddish hues uh, further down you go. So the further up you work in a kind of visual environment where you still assume all those colors to be of relevance makes it easier to to make those jumps but what we do indeed is when we design those objects that we put in front of the animals we design them uh, using those mathematical models to make them in a certain way that we assume it to appear to the animal so yeah so <laughs> we have we have compensating calculations and that kind yes, of thing so we understand vision uh, in in animals well enough these days that we're we're able to make pretty good assumptions of how things would appear so for the listeners at home can you go into a little bit about how color might behave a little bit differently in water as opposed to air um so yes <laughs> so what happens is when uh, the light that comes from the sun hits the surface of the water a big part of that gets um Bound, gets bounces off the surface, right? And uh, so that's your glare that you see. And then whatever enters the water starts traveling down and it gets scattered inside the water depending on the wavelength of the different parts of the light. So blue would be short, red would be long wavelengths. And the long wavelengths get uh, f- absorbed. They get scattered um, much quicker than the shorter parts, the shorter wavelength parts of the light. And that's why reds and yellows and things get lost really quickly and the further down you go you have this blue green sting to everything so that's why water can appear blue to us is because the high energy scattering of the high frequency waves gets pushed around the surface and bounces out and gets into your eye so it appears blue and that's why you lose red sort of hues quite quickly when say you dropped a red heavy red ball into the ocean (laughs) you lose sight of it very very quickly apart from the fact it's sinking (laughs) but because the the red light finds it harder to get back into your eye so what i want to know is what do what do we know about the photoreceptors in fish in these trigger fish just because as izzy was saying these light waves have to hit something in our eyes for us that our see. brain yeah. detects as yeah. a color yeah. what are what's similar in fish when it comes to like our photoreceptors versus theirs so um they have cones just like we do you know like how we have rods and cones and uh, cones essentially being important for daylight vision and color vision and we have three of them right so we you can call it red green and blue or short wave long wave medium wave sensitive um so that's why our tv screens and whatnot work for us yes to, and um, so with the trigger fish, they also have three. So they have a, a medium, 
a short and a long wave photoreceptor, but everything is just kind of the sensitivity of that of those three photoreceptors is shifted towards the blue. So they can't really see red. So whatever, if you put something red in front of them, it will more appear like drab, brown, darkish kind of. And this is something that you see happening all across aquatic ecosystems that the further down you go, the more likely animals lose their ability to see red because it's just not there. And that sort of seems to line up with our ideas of how the red light diminishes. Yes, so it's it's a yeah. consequence of that. And what's the point in investing energy in something into something see. that isn't there? Yes. And so, so that, that's where, you know, like when you go on the water, you go on a dive and you, you see a nudibranch and it's bright red and you're down at like 18 meters. It's probably pretty well camouflaged to whatever is using its eyes to hunt it. But to you, it looks like a, like a cherry crawling along <laughs> the uh, and, reef, right? And this goes back to like what we, what we were talking about earlier about how you really have to remember that light behaves differently in water when you want to study these marine e- ecosystems. Yeah. Because, yeah, as a terrestrial animal going in there, you hear, oh, that's clearly signaling to predators that it's that it's yeah. dangerous. It's a thing to worry about. But Where in reality, it's, it's camouflage. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so understanding... understanding like overcoming these um, sensory limitations that we have and that we humans have become really good at overcoming using um, technology. So think of the Hubble telescope to be able to peek into space or think about microscopes to be able to look at stuff that we can't resolve with our visual sense. Um, so it's an augmentation of our of our of our sensory abilities to put ourselves into the head of the actual drivers of those evolutionary mechanisms. So if you want to understand why the zebra wears its stripes, you probably have to look at the zebra through the eyes of a lion to answer that question. Well, I think it, even further than that, you have to look at the zebra through the eyes of a lion, then through the eyes of another zebra. <laughs> exactly, <the> <laughs> and both, and then see, and, see, and um, most likely you'll come up with kind of a message because the zebra has eyes that... The, the, the result is most likely an, a complex interan- interaction of tons of stuff. Well, things tend to devolve well to, to move towards a system of like greatest efficiency. And the best efficiency you've got is when what you're doing serves more than one purpose. So if you can, if your colors can distract a predator, attract a mate, and well, I don't know, ward off insects, who knows? That's that's an yeah. efficient coloration system. Absolutely. So, and this is something that with um, that's where my project kind of comes in. So. Up until recently, people used to, um, if you wanted to go and find out what something looks like to another animal, you'd go, you'd take a spectrophotometer, which is a light measuring device, and it has an optic fiber cable attached to it, and you point it at something, and you look at what light is bouncing back, so that gives you the color. Um, the issue that you have there is you're pointing a single thing at a single point, but if you look at the visual scene and let's think of a nudibranch against its complex reef background, you can't go around tens of thousands of times taking those measurements, so that's why we use photography. Uh, this is like one of those classical scientific problems where in order to get informa- specific information, we want to take a bit of a reductionist view, but by reducing the variables you also get an incomplete picture of what you're looking at <laughs> yes so yeah so up until recently that was up until maybe 10 years ago that was the fundamental issue with so people would spend hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars to get really complex versions of those spectrophotometers this. underwater um, and to get that quantitative information right to get all the information in the visual scene and only recently have people been able to 
and has digital photography advanced to the level where you don't really have that trade-off anymore uh, if you operate within certain limitations that you need to understand. We should get James Cameron involved in these things. He loves diving and he's, he's got access <laughs> and he's to... he's got a bunch of money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of film equipment. <laughs> He'll make everything so much yeah. easier. You're listening to Natural Reaction here on Z Digital and we are still chatting with Cedric Vandenberg. <laughs> <laughs> and he and Izzy were having a very delightful conversation during the break time. Yes. Yes. About, <laughs> about diving. <laughs> about diving. Would you like to elaborate? Oh, yeah. Uh, so... I suppose we were talking about the kind of qualifications you need and uh, how you got into this position as a, as a diver. Yeah. Um, hmm. So we'll start like you, you. So you obtained your scientific diving qualifications uh, in as part of your master's degree. Yeah, back in Europe. In Europe. Yeah. Diving some lovely spots in Portugal and France. <laughs> all those places that you'd love to go, um, that you'd love to be paid to learn how to dive in. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was. I was really lucky to have um in my master's program to have a scientific diving uh included in the curriculum so they would see the ability to be a proficient diver with a skill set to do all those research tasks underwater to be that uh, a tool that is worth teaching future marine scientists so I would get credit points for jumping in the water yeah (sighs) so good (laughs) (laughs) tough life that sounds great Um, and then we were talking a little bit about how spoiled Australians are in general about our beautiful marine resources (laughs) that we have right on shore yeah you can see um, especially in school of biology so many um, international students coming and they're so excited to be marine biologists in Australia. It's like <laughs> the thing to do when you come study in Australia, it's marine biology. Yeah, it, it is. I think it's uh, an extremely unique um, constellation of, of things that come together. Um, yeah, like we were talking about, the um, you have all this amazing uh, nature around you and you have this diversity in ecosystems especially like from a marine point of view like temperate marine ecosystems tropical marine ecosystems and it's right next to um a country a society that is wealthy wealthy really wealthy and and well developed so you have institutions like the universities that you have here in brisbane for example um that are leading in the world in their field so it's a really privileged place to to conduct research with their hubs international hubs of expertise and you're right next to some of the most stunning nature on the planet and that is a a magical magical um really attractive combination (laughs) that that attracts people from all over the world especially scientists you sort of you hear that (laughs) oh i have (laughs) access to top class laboratory equipment as well as yeah. An amazing research location. Ooh. It's the dream of, I think, uh, most marine or aspiring marine scientists around the world is to be to be able to kind of make it to this part of the world Ooh. and do that kind of stuff. Uh, so actually, well, you're an interesting person to ask this question then. Uh, w- what are your sort of commentary on the general health of the marine ecosystems you've been involved in while researching <laughs> here? Um talking about the proximity of a wealthy country next to all that amazing nature it comes with a lot of responsibility i think um an obligation to 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 look to be a steward of of those resources and um so we do a lot of work um on the great barrier reef and but also um just right outside of brisbane sunshine coast um 
uh, Gold Coast. And there are a lot of human pressures uh, really affecting um, those ecosystems. Um, speaking of uh, Kwandamuka Bay, so when we talk about um, the Morton Bay area with all the runoff that's created by uh, inland development in the catchment um, that is smothering marine life and just kind of leading to a whole bunch of um, influences um, that affect uh, the biodiversity out there right away same issue with the entire great barrier reef with uh, runoff coastal runoff with mining with um, commercial activities and kind of um, where especially with the great barrier reef marine park authority being kind of perceived as an international beacon of how wealthy societies should and could go about um, aligning economic interests with ecological interests and where I mean, especially in the last two years with, um, I think, whoever switched on the news in the last two years has heard about those two massive, massive uh, bleaching events that mm. are uh, obviously um, the result of a lot of complex interactions coming together. But what it amounts to is um, w a need of of um, that responsibility to be applied for. And I still think it's amazing and mind-boggling, beautiful what's out there. But if you talk to people who have spent their lives documenting those ecosystems and being around them and you see these people crying into the diving mask when they look around and see a dead coral reef um it breaks your heart and it it's so tragic because if there is any part of the world where people would have not only the knowledge but the resources but the resources to do something about it um australia is one of those mm. places yeah yeah, it's very important that we take into consideration what we're actually doing to these natural resources. Um, and earlier on, we elucidated to something you've been involved with, and that is you're part of a team that has recently published <laughs> a book. Yes. Uh, ooh. On yeah, big um, ranks. Yeah, so um, I was lucky enough to be part of an incredible, incredible citizen science project um, at the University of Queensland, led by. Uh, the University of Queensland Dive Club, uh, where uh, more than 100 people essentially came together um, from all corners of society, some trained marine scientists, uh, others just uh, the, the occasional scuba diver. And uh, we got together to set out to um, document the, the life and the reef itself out uh, on Flinders Reef. That's uh, a beautiful, beautiful, extremely uh, unique um piece of underwater world just at the gates of Morton Bay, just off Cape Morton. Um, and so we did, um, the project was called the Flinders Reef Ecological Assessment. And so we set out to document the health, both in biological terms, but also looking at the diversity of um, like mapping the reef in the first place to get an understanding of what's where and really documented in detail. And so what came out of that project was uh, a really detailed um, report that was sent off to government agencies to there's the kind of information that government does not have the money and the time for to get information on that level and so it's a really valuable contribution to uh, inform government decisions about how to protect those places and know what's about and what state those places are in and another thing that um, came as a collateral of that because there's a lot of talented underwater photographers in in the university dive clubs a part of 
doing all that scientific work, we also try to document the place using photography and our, our abilities as underwater photographers. And we compiled a uh, coffee table book um, called uh, Flinders. Um, you can get it uh, with Reef Check Australia. You can get it um, yeah, it's different places around Brisbane if you wanted uh, to. And it's just um, it's a really nice kind of a, cross-section through the biodiversity and the fascination of the underworld out there and kind of really trying to highlight why and how Flinders is so special. We had the Minister of the Environment, uh, Steve Miles, uh, write uh, the opening part of the book. And we had Sylvia Earle, one of the most prominent underwater conservationists, globally speaking, also write a a uh, little snippet in the forward, so everybody's extremely proud of that. And That's so yeah. fantastic! Congratulations! <laughs> it's a big, it's a big accomplishment. So, yeah, um, if, having, anyone, sorry, sorry. If, if anyone wants to get the book, uh, go to Reef Check Australia. Uh, it's called Flinders. Uh, yeah. it, or if you, you can't, if you can't remember that, just Google uh, Flinders Reef. Uh, Ecological assessment, yeah, a short uh, free. Uh, I think, but yeah. it's a bit hard because a lot of people use the word yeah. free. Of, <laughs> yeah, free is used for a lot of things. <laughs> so try using Flinders Reef ecological uh, assessment, and then just put book, and something will come up, and enjoy some pretty, pretty, pretty pictures. And of course, these pictures are probably one of the biggest visual reasons as to why we need to protect this biodiversity Absolutely. and these ecosystems. There's actually one great thing about the marine environment is that like. It is self-evident why it needs to be protected. You take a picture of it, it's like, yeah, okay, you don't need to explain any further. Like, no. that is why yeah. we need to look and up. It's such an alien world to us, right? Mm. And I just always, it reminds me of the saying that we know more about the backside of the moon than we know about our world's mm. oceans. And, and that by itself, I think, says it all. Yes, exactly. It's insane. One last question, which is a question which Jacinta always asks all of our guests. And what do you do in your everyday, like, you go into uni, you go into your office, what do you do? Uh, and it's probably a bit different for you. So on days when you aren't diving and all of that, what is your normal um, schedule like every day? Um, I think overall it comes down to a mixture of trying to clean up all the paperwork that the paper trail that comes with going out to the field and doing the kind of field work that I do. Uh, looking after the animals, like just have a quick stroll through the aquarium, see if um, they all have names, you know, Bob yeah, and Charlie and Rosie, if they're all, if they're healthy and happy. And then I uh, get, probably get a coffee, get back into my office. And um, at the moment, I'm very involved in just data analysis um, and continue to code, write, program on my my algorithms uh, see through pictures and essentially write stuff that can be used for books and reports and whatnot. Very cool. So <laughs> lots of paperwork is what... The life of a scientist, yeah. Yeah. paperwork. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, yeah um, in, you, have to, you have to do your homework. One of the few things more reliable in the water cycle is paperwork <laughs> is the paperwork cycle <laughs> it's unavoidable whether it's writing grants whether it's getting OHNS approval to go on oh yeah things. i can only oh, yeah. imagine the OHNS approval needed to go diving for a edu for univer for a university yeah. project uh the, the <laughs> amount of paperwork you have to do to move a a petri dish from upstairs to downstairs in the wrong circumstances that's why be. you just don't tell people and just do it <laughs> yeah. no wait don't don't take my advice don't uh, do natural reaction of course disavows and does not 
would never, ever, ever uh, think say you should break the law. We follow <laughs> policy as much as possible. <laughs> um, with that, I thought it would be a good segue to just quickly jump into this one story since it's on on diving, um, and then I think we'll get into Izzy's side of things soon. Uh, probably very quickly. Yeah, quick, quick. Oh no, we've got time. Oh, we've got time. So I came across this article on um, basically natural selection gave free diving people in Southeast Asia bigger spleens. Do you know how big your spleen is, Cedric? <laughs> I don't know how big my spleen is. <laughs> I've seen this this morning, though. Yeah, it's a yeah. interesting paper. It's definitely cool, and it's um, one thing it is highlighting is how humans are, I guess, uh, quote unquote, evolving from one another. Like how we are changing between societies, and um, based on how we interact with the environment. And the Budju people of Southeast Asia are known as these sea nomads. They spend their entire lives at sea, and they often work in eight-hour diving shifts with traditional equipment. And they take short breaks uh, in between catching fish and shellfish for their families. So they spend a lot of time underwater holding their breath for massive amounts of time that I would not be able to imagine. I suck at freediving. Really? <laughs> I'm sure you have a higher lung capacity than <laughs> I do. Oh, freedivers free are just endlessly impressive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, yes, I, I totally agree. But, um, I'm, I mean, I can There's uh, a, maybe get down to 20 meters and stay there for a little bit, uh, but that's it. <laughs> a friend of mine can hold his breath probably for like, like if he's really pushing it, going to like close to two minutes. And it's just like, that's... That's as impressive as it gets to me. Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, can't people hold their breaths for like up to 10 minutes? Some of, some of there was people. recently just a record, I think, um, uh, just some, somebody just recently broke the record of um, like holding their breath. Did they, uh, just so everyone knows as well, uh, a lot of these records are set when people hyperventilate before going under. So like you really super oxygenate your, your blood before going. Do not do that if it's just you going, because what that can do is deceive your brain a little bit about how much oxygen you have and you put yourself at because like if you have if you've super oxygenated your blood and you're going under you might push it too far and just pass out underwater at an extreme depth yeah. while if you've gone down with just your breath of air you're more you're better perceptive of how much time you actually have that's an interesting mechanism so it's it's your brain actually measuring the carbon dioxide um uh in your blood and based on that uh, regulating how much oxygen your different parts of your body get and so by hyperventilating you're shifting that carbon i think you're lowering it and that then makes your brain think that everything's all right okay so it's not you don't have as much oxygen in your blood you you've tricked because you proxy measure carbon dioxide for the oxygen level you suppress yeah uh, your urge to (gasps) to to breathe Well, anyway, um, this study was performed from, well, by a number of different universities, one of them being University of California, University of Copenhagen, and Cambridge. And what these uh, researchers were looking at is how hypoxia works in humans. And they noticed that the Baju people, Baja, uh, sorry about that, uh, the Bajau, have larger spleens than their non-diving neighbors. And this suggested to them that their diving culture had shaped their physiology, which is one thing we don't see very often between different groups of people, something that they do within their environment, shaping their actual physiology. Um, Non-divers and divers of these uh, Bajau people both had larger spleens. So this looks at um, this appeared to be an adaptive response throughout generations, and not just those who um, dived more consistently. I wonder if this says something about 
how in how important diving is to the culture there like that how much of their culture is actually revolves around diving and the things that you get from the sea because like, you consider this to other parts of uh, different human populations that have these noticeable ge- variances in the genetic baseline they're mostly like mountain populations for instance where like everyone is subjected to the same conditions so it makes sense that everyone moves in a certain direction it's a matter of whether it gives you a fitness benefit right mm. if it helps you through selection and uh, obviously, if you're a better diver, you get more fish. You're more likely to survive. I could feed see your family. feed but it, your family. But it also means like there's has to be a certain critical mass of people involved in that activity. Otherwise, you won't yeah. breed it into the like that. It needs yeah. to spread. I think it's pretty much everybody like living in on under the water with in these islands. They're like, yeah. at least yeah, a within large, a small group, or at um, least in the recent past. I think I don't know to what extent their lifestyles have changed. With um, I think they're still pretty traditional. And oh yeah, and uh, of course, I think yeah, the proportion of people who interact with the water in that way would probably be quite large. I imagine islands aren't you know they're not continents. We don't <laughs> for a reason. They're, everyone's living near the coastline. Yeah. Um, so I guess one of the biggest reasons why the spleen size specifically is big, just because it has a it has an important role in humans dives in the human dive response. Um, so when our faces are submerged in water and we hold our breath, our heart rate slows and our blood vessels start to constrict, so they get much smaller. The spleen will then contract and release oxygenated red blood cells. And that allows more oxygen to become available in the bloodstream. And, of course, a larger spleen means more oxygen gets released. And this phenom- phenomenon has also been seen of um, in diving seals, where they have much larger spleens than, say, non-diving seals. Mm-hmm. Um, and what the researchers <laughs> did, they basically did, a, uh, they looked at the genomes of the Bajau people, and they identified 25 single nucleotide polymorphisms. So we've spoken about SNPs before, but basically they are these variable sites within the genomes that can confer some like variance between people and populations. And they found that 25 sites differed significantly from two comparison populations, so the Saluan and the Han Chinese people. And one of these sites was on a gene known as PDE10A. And this was found to be correlated with the Bajau's larger spleen size, even after they accounted for factors like age, sex, and height. And studies have shown that this PDE10A is known for regulating a thyroid hormone that controls spleen size, and they've done these studies in mice. So it does look like this um, alter gene is responsible for the Bajau's larger spleens. Oh, very interesting. So very cool study. It's It's great to see something like... Um, finding evidence for like a population-specific form of natural selection mm. is so rare, and this is just incredibly especially, cool. Especially in humans, like yeah, this is this is a really, really sort of unexplored space in many ways. No, it, it just goes to show that we are still evolving, right? Like, yeah, yeah. There are a lot of people who want to say that very pessimistic thing, like oh, we've domesticated ourselves, we're not evolving anymore. But there are obviously, yeah. yeah. It's definitely examples. Anyway, you're listening to Natural Reaction here on Z Digital and Izzy. Oh, yes. I want to talk about some pyroelectric uh, nanomaterial with a solid energy conversion. So to break that down a little bit, uh, probably we'll start with what is the pyroelectric effect. And the pyroelectric effect is uh, the sort of the ability to 
for to be able to, to change heat into electricity, heat energy into electric electric energy, uh, not to be confused with the thermoelectric effect, uh, pyro and thermo being obviously quite related. So to the difference between them would be that the thermoelectric effect requires like a temperature gradient, and the pyroelectric effect uh, requires like changes in temperature. So one the thermoelectric is Cha- uh, cha- temperature changing over distance. Pyroelectric effect is temperature changing over time. So like that. I thought pyro was always associated more with fire. Yeah. So uh, clearly they probably came up with the thermo one first. And went, wow, we need another one. <laughs> yeah, they already <laughs> use it name. No. <laughs> no it's something that sounds hot now. <laughs> uh, which <laughs> a lot of things are named like that, surprisingly. So roughly on average about like 70% of energy produced is wasted as heat is is it sorry 70% of energy produced comes out as waste heat because there are there are times when you produce energy deliberately to cause heat that wouldn't be defined as waste heat obviously so about 70% of energy goes towards wasted heat uh and when you say something like that it's like oh well that's a a big loss in efficiency of course any Basically, any process like this, any process, any mechanical process, re- will require a big waste of energy. You, nothing is a hundred percent efficient in its conversion of, uh, say, chemical energy to electrical energy or mechanical energy to something's always lost. Yeah, something is always lost, and it's normally lost as heat. So, about seventy percent of our energy is wasted as heat. Uh, so, as a, in, in an attempt to sort of recapture some of that wasted energy, make things a bit more efficient. The, uh, the University of Berkeley, uh, the Prometheus Group at the University of Berkeley, which what is... What a name. I know, very mm. great. Oh, how much competition do you think there was to like get the, the, the rights to that name for a lab? <laughs> do lab names have rights associated with them? I don't know. Can we just, can we just call out... Can we just make one called Prometheus? Labs? I don't see anything wrong with it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll keep that on Bring the Bring up the competition. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, so they uh, they created a thin, a very thin nanofilm designed to capture some of this waste heat and convert it back into electricity using this pyroelectric effect. Uh, and the, re- the, the pyroelectric effect has been known about for a while now. It's quite a well-established physical principle. Uh, in theory, at least, uh, trying to work out how, the, how to best apply these things in practice, as I'm sure most people know is a whole different box of frogs it's uh it can be very difficult it can be one thing to know how the equations describe certain relationships uh it can be another to know how to actually action those so the reason that we're sort of seeing this uh bit of innovation in the nano material space is because like the, the extreme thinness and we're talking very very thin so 50 to 100 nanometers thick uh that's pretty small. It's pretty small. That's thinner than a hair. Yeah. Uh, Quite a bit thin, thinner than a hair. <laughs> a lot thinner yeah. than a hair. That's <laughs> exactly. So it's, it's very, very thin, and it allows that really quick conduction of heat. And that's how it's uh, it's broken a couple of records for energy conversion. So it set the new pyroelectric energy conversion energy density. So at 1.06 joules per cubic centimeter. So every cubic centimeter of it, you have 1.6 joules. Uh, power density at 526 watts per cubic centimeter, and it reached a 19% 19% Carnot efficiency. Uh, the Carnot efficiency is the theoretical maximum energy 
that you can reclaim from a heat engine. So anything that's using heat to do work, create en- to get to uh, don't like get energy, <laughs> like anything that's using heat energy to do something that requires energy. Yeah, is a is a heat engine, and so it has a nineteen percent Carnot efficiency. The way this pyroelectric effect works is that you have a higher temperature place and a lower temperature place, and that kind of sets your maximum how much energy you can get the how much electricity you can pull from that difference and uh, so it's 19 percent for this theoretical maximum what that is in practice depends obviously on the application you're doing what you're doing it in and how the different maximum temperature and the minimum temperature so 19 percent is still still not bad though when you think about some of these massive industrial processes so this 90 percent is the conversion of energy from heat from heat to like what percentage of this waste heat you can capture and use okay. as electricity. So 19% is the theoretical maximum for this particular nanomaterial. So that's not to say that you will get exactly 19% when you put it on anything. It's still better than 0%. It's, it's a lot better yeah. than 0%. <laughs> I mean, if we're going for anything here, let's take the 19% over 0%. Exactly. And the thinness of this means you could theoretically in the future apply it to a whole lot of different things. Unfortunately, the big stumbling block for a lot of these energy-saving materials is that they're very expensive at the moment. Uh, in order, to, and they some things, and they're not their applications are can be quite limited. In that, the amount of energy that you're going to save by coding everything in your standard desktop computer with it is probably quite small because there's not that big a heat difference. Uh, there's not that much energy pumping into the system there. Uh, if you could add that up across every single human being on the Earth's computer, on the other hand, that would be a different thing. But can you realistically do that? We'll see as it goes on. But if you can move this into industrial spaces where we do produce massive amounts of waste heat uh, in basically the manufacturing of anything, in the production of electricity itself, there's a mass- basically all modern electrical electric- electricity production except for solar boils down to boiling water and using it to turn a turbine, including nuclear energy. You just, it's a really expensive, really complicated way of making tea, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) (laughs) You're harnessing the power of the atom to boil water. Um, uh, So in any, because you're turning a turbine, you're losing a massive amount of that to heat energy. energy. So, you know, there are spaces for these kinds of materials could become very, very important. Again, this is all sort of down the track a bit. It's still very new, isn't it? Yes. um, These nanomaterials, especially you see a lot of them popping up as like wearable nanomaterials for a variety of different purposes. I'm curious to know when they're going to actually come into play on a grand scale. Yeah, because to be honest with you, the wearable nanomaterials at the moment are pretty much gimmicks. Yeah, Uh, like LEDs and all that. Uh, we're, we're getting to a space where they'll be useful. I just don't think we're there yet, personally. And the same is kind of true of this. Like, this is a very important step forward for nanomaterials and pyroelectric nanomaterials in particular. But uh, whether or not it's a this particular one is the ne- is like something big by itself is a different story altogether. Uh, I would probably say we need some more time going say at least 50 to another 100 years and then we're going to see a big <laughs> well science is slow but progress I is about 50 to 100 i can see some of these materials becoming very uh probably not in in like commercial application but uh if you think about things like in there are certain applications where cost does not matter as much 
Um, space technology? Space technology is the big one I, mean, I was thinking of. Uh, oh, very true. And military, for instance, think about having, uh, if you can coat a couple of bits of your radio in this and it gives you a bit more, a, a, like an extra 20% life out of the battery. Let your drove, drone fly for a couple of hours yeah. longer. Or... Oh, these are very cool possibilities. Yeah, these are, <laughs> these are actually quite uh, uh, big spaces. You're listening to Natural Reaction here on Z Digital and that's the show for this week. Oh, I just really want to quickly... Uh, say about the pyroelectric thing, oh, yes. just to explain how actually how a pyroelectric effect works is that uh, there are certain materials that when they're disturbed in a way like by increasing temperature, they a dipole is generated on a molecular level. So like basically a dipole is where you actually have a difference in positive and negative charge across the, well, in this case, the molecule. And that allows electricity to flow. It's just that, that positive, because electrons like to flow from positive to negative, having that happen allows that flow of electrons and that's literally literally electricity so it's just as simple as that the temperature change uh causes this formation of a dipole which in turn causes allows electrons to flow very cool hmm. and that was izzy summarizing what he spoke about which is transferring well, well recapturing heat with nanomaterials yes very cool. Thanks for that. Cedric, thank you again for coming into the studio. It was awesome chatting to you about your research. And again, for the listeners out there, go check out his book. Well, um, go check out his book. Please don't call him. <laughs> no, a- no. Anything but my book. No, of course. But like, he did contribute to the photography. Yes. Exactly. Um, I did contribute, like many, many other people. Yeah. Yes. Thanks for having me. Science is a big collaborative effort. We must it never is. forget that. Yes. And you collaborated to an amazing effort. So well done on that. <laughs> and seriously, these pictures are fantastic. Go check them out. Definitely. <laughs> and um, I spoke about Hilda Mangold, one of the pioneers in embryological development, and spoke a little bit about the enlarged spleens of the Bajau people and why it's important in our evolutionary variation that's still going on. I also think it, it could be amazing if that's used to track the Bajau people as they expand into the rest of the world as well in the future, because like we have the interesting ones about this genetic proof that people went from South America back into the, the Pacific Islands, and that was proposed by Thor Heyderall like 80 years ago, uh, in, the, in the 80s, and he... All right, anyone read up on Thor Hydro? It's too long a story for now, but just Google <laughs> really it. It's, cool fanta- story, it, it, it's a fantastic uh, really story. Really cool. Exactly. All right, you've been listening to Natural Reaction here on Z Digital. Check us out on social media, Twitter, Facebook, all that jazz. Reach out to us with any questions, comments, concerns. We'd love to hear from you. Download the show. Download the show. And thank you, everyone, for listening in, and have a great week. Download it on multiple devices. Get, like, six different computers. <laughs> all the devices. Have a good week, people. Bye. Bye.